This is KQEN Local Talk at 4. Every weekday, News Radio 1240 you know, let's just KQEN. Start. The, the music's not even on. <laughs> at 4 Welcome to the True Love Radio Show. I know, let's go. Show. I thought it was the cue music, services. but uh, we're just going to wing it. So welcome to the True Wealth Program. Minus the, you know what? What? You know what comes next? Our own theme music. You've been rallying that for four years now. It's not happening. No, no, it can totally happen. This was the first step. Now we can be like, well, you know, you turn the music off. So now all we have to do is replace it. So that sounds good in theory when you're like, oh, our own theme music. But do you really know what kind of theme music you want? Because themey. <sighs> no, it'll be the best theme music. I'm. Mean, this is like Batman asking for theme music. <laughs> it's gonna be awesome. <laughs> so. All right. Thank you, David, for that. You are tuning in to the True Wealth Radio Show. Host Dave Littlejohn and hostess with the mostest. Katie Shook on a Muse Day. Muse Day. She's got it. (laughs) I love it. Muse Day, right? Or or the other one is my favorite. It's a ton day. It it is a ton day. No joke. Right? Ton day. Because when you don't have Monday, you cram Monday and Tuesday together Ton day. There's just so much to do. You've got a ton of it. There's a ton day. <laughs> it's a ton day. So in a I like shortened... Tuesday. It sounds much happier. <laughs> it does, but but ton day is legit. It is. So here we are on uh, this this ton day, the last week of May. I know. I can't believe how fast it's flown by. It has flown by, and it has been a caca week for or month really for the markets. This has been the first. It looks like, unless a miracle happens in the rest of this week, will be the first negative month of May since 2012, I believe. Wow, that's a while. Yep. And so for years, there used to be the old expression in the markets, hey, sell in May and go away. Uh, and, and right now, I have to tell you, uh, so, we're, so we got some things to talk about. I have good things to talk about today. You have good stuff? Unlike normally, which you don't have good stuff. Well, let's turn out. I mean, what that's there's <laughs> we have good stuff like oh the quality is there, but I mean this is good like happy optimistic that kind of good Got stuff it. to talk about. Okay, uh, because we are going to start try we're going to try to start a movement today in Little Old Roseburg. You are solar powered, aren't you? Like the sun came out and you are excited. I like the sunshine. You do. Not gonna lie. David is definitely solar powered, guys. I, I wake up easy. Oh, oh, sunshine. Well, don't mind if I do. Yeah. Right in the middle of winter time, it's like what? It's still morning night. Why am I getting up? Morning. Yeah. Our, yeah. Your kids like to call it morning night. It's right. morning, but it's that, still dark that outside. That was my. I had like my middle daughter, my middleest. Ellie, when she was about three years old, we had to get up at, I don't know, something god-awful, like 4 a.m. to go to the airport and catch a flight. And so we're getting her out of bed, and she's looking around, and it's all dark, and she's wondering what's going on. And she says, Dad, why is it morning night? And that has stuck with me ever since. It was the cutest phrase. Uh, So, yes, I am not a fan of morning night either. But But sunshine... Uh, coming through at some time shortly thereafter, the 5 a.m. At 3.47, it was still dark, so I could lay back down this morning. But once it was after 5, it's like, well, you know, I guess there's the day. I think we ought to get her. That's it, yeah. So um, here's the deal. Let's talk about the markets first because I almost just want to get it over with. Right? Rip it like a Band-Aid. Just go for it. Here's, I think, what we need to start recognizing. Uh for a long time, the thought was that the 
current, you know, the, the, the Trump administration and the concept of the trade war with China was a great deal of posturing in politics in order to leverage a different kind of deal. Okay. And I'm going to give you a lot of editorial opinion for a moment. Okay. This is just my take on this subject to change as new information is available. Right. Like tomorrow. <laughs> Correct. Like this evening. Who yeah. knows? But this is kind of my working theory in what I've seen. Uh, both the Trump administration and the Chinese leadership structure are not interested in giving a whole lot of ground. And I don't know if it's macho or saving face or what we want to call it, but both uh, are now at a point of sort of doubling down on their commitment to say, well, look, if you don't want to play ball, fine. Then we will do it our way. But they're both saying that. They're both saying that. And so, in a sense, both are willing to endure some pain here. So we have to look at two things. What what kind of pain? So what pain will China endure? Um, not receiving some of our goods. Or will they receive them, but at a different price? And they will also, maybe not exporting as much. It's the export that is the biggie, right? Not exporting a lot of stuff. Because China exports a whole bunch more from us than they import from us. So they have a a trade imbalance, right? Right. The other thing is that we build a lot in China, right? The United States has a lot of manufacturing done overseas in China. And so if they become structurally less competitive. Then the factories might move. Right. And remember, structurally, for those of you that are not familiar with that term, we're talking about uh, structure is not just like a mechanical thing. It's not, oh, well, the buildings are different or something like that. Um, if you've ever heard a term like structural unemployment, okay, that, that essentially means that there are not actually the jobs in existence and they're not likely to be created because of barriers in that environment. So you have structural unemployment. Well, when you have structural elements in an economy, like tariffs that change the pricing of something, then you've changed the underlying assumptions for your economic models, right? Right. And once that happens, it may be less attractive price-wise to manufacture in China. So at what point does a company say, you know what, it's cheaper to do it somewhere else, so we're gonna relocate because, you know, by, by the time we pay the tariffs, we could build whole new factories and retool somewhere else. Which is and, a, which is and, a good possibility right. at this and point. And what is our recovery time on the cost to do that? Right? right. So let's let's pick Nike. You know, Nike. Now they don't really manufacture a lot of shoes in China, but let's say that they did, and they said, you know, it's no longer cost competitive for us to have our sh- shoes. Our warehouse. Our yeah, our manufacturing manufacturing in China. So we're going to move them to where I think most of it is to Vietnam instead. Right. Right. So there's a. The labor structure is more attractive and the business climate is more attractive for us. So we will relocate our factories, even though we'll lose some money abandoning factories. It's cheaper for us to abandon that and go somewhere else. Yeah, than but it is the time to horizon going. to recover the money might be a lot shorter than people assume. Right. And the other thing that people forget is that these companies oftentimes are dealing in billions. Right. Yeah. So you think, oh, they can build a hundred million dollar campus. That's really expensive. And you go, it's true. But when you're talking about making billions of dollars in profits per quarter, then you just make the decision and you move as quickly as you need to to be cost efficient. So the structural elements that China is going to deal with could permanently alter their economy. That is true in the United States as well. 
It's going to cause companies to retool and move money around the world. And it is dangerous in the sense because once you've done it once, then where does it end? Right? Where do other countries start to initiate other structural changes? What do you mean? Well, first China says, well, we'll behave this way, and then so labor moves to Vietnam. What happens if Vietnam says, well, we'll do the same thing as China? Then where do you move to? That's a great question. Right? And so it, it shuffles around for a while, and, and one would like to say that, well, the free markets will handle this. And to a certain extent, they will. They will, yeah. I mean, so I guess eventually if you end up running out of options, you just come home and then, but. That's, well, and I think that's the Trump administration's position is that, you know, we've been elected to bring jobs back to the United States. And so that's how we're going to work on how to do it. And it it may be more expensive to do things here in this country, but they're kind of going, well, we have a printing press and we'll spool up our own domestic economy. And that's what we'll do. And then there's the flip side of it, which is the currency exchange. People say, well, that's going to weaken the United States, their currency compared to the rest of the world. And there are those that say, yeah, but in a way that makes it easier for the rest of the world to do business with us. Oh, that's true. Right. So, it just depends on where we play nice. You know, I mean, we play relatively nice with Europe. Relatively. Okay. We played relatively nice with China. Now, I will continue to say, again, it's sort of just an opinion here, but uh, it's not a commentary on Chinese people or Chinese culture other not than business. When I say that the there's a there's a big elephant in the room and it's intellectual property. And the fact that China does not... Uh, acknowledge or right they, they don't subscribe to the same principles of intellectual property that we do this is my polite way of saying they'll steal it yeah. right china will look at something and go, well we'll just copy it and do it ourselves and that and we'll do it cheaper and we'll sell more of it and we'll put you and out that, of that is or, that is kind of okay or at least if they're dealing with countries besides themselves i don't know how they deal internally um, there's not a lot of social pushback because in communist regimes you know it's not elected by majority or something like that it's right. just that's how it goes so it creates an interesting climate so why this whole discussion at all How does this affect the markets or how does this affect us as an investor? It affects us as investors and it affects the markets because the markets are a, they're trying to price in future earnings. And what we've just done is we've thrown a lot more structural uncertainty into future earnings. So it's floundering around a little bit more trying to figure out what it wants to be when it grows up. Well, and it, you know, we're trying to look at this, say, how many of these companies are going to have sustainable and increasing profits in the future with this change in dynamic of international trade? Very interesting question. And, And you look at today, I thought was a very interesting look at the markets. You had some of the larger internet type companies that still managed to hold up in an environment where the markets were down, you know, like. Like the S and P 500 as an index is down almost one percent today. Uh, I'm just going to pull it up to make sure I'm not speaking out of turn here. But Amazon finished up 0.72 for the day, so S and P's down 0.84 percent. Amazon's up 0.72. Well, Amazon's not a manufacturer; they're a distributor, right? And their lion's share of their market is here in the United States, right? Right. So. That looks like a pretty safe stock, relatively speaking. Although I am impressed where you can prime things to. <laughs> yes. Uh, but then also you think about, uh, now there's lots of other things going on, but Tesla. Tesla as a stock has been really beat up. And you have to think about, well, what are the contributing factors? One of them is the price of oil is declining. So alternative energy is less competitive, right? Two, Which, if the price of oil is declining, how come the price of gas is increasing? 
that's a separate supply and demand element, including some of the costs that we keep adding to gasoline. Right, you know the cost of refining gasoline, the cost of moving it around the country, and the cost of all the taxes and other elements that get tossed on top of. Because man, you can tell summer is near. All of a sudden, gas prices just keep inching up and inching yeah, up. it's fascinating. But back to our example of Tesla, the other thing is Tesla's got pretty significant exposure to China. Right, oh. they they were building a manufacturing plant in China, and they're trying to get their production numbers up so they can move more vehicles and bring the price down. And this is a massive like, change of events for Tesla. Yeah, and if I you just look, threw a wrench in there yeah, a little. Uh, Tesla engine. stock price in December on December fourth, stock price three hundred fifty nine dollars. Stock price today one hundred eighty eight dollars. Ooh, it got and some pennies. Right? It's been clubbed like a baby seal. Oh my goodness! Just ugly and not not good. So, so is that a stock to watch? To- uh, you know, you can watch it for different reasons. I can only issue opinions, not recommendations on stocks. No, no, I'm not saying a purchase. Uh, I'm just saying stock to watch. I think like- it's I think it is an interesting one to watch. That story is interesting. I love the product. I don't know if the financials of the company are healthy enough to survive. So it will be very interesting to to watch how that materializes. And I do. I mean, I really the cars are cool. Oh, the cars you know, are really cool. The cars cool. are really cool. They're cool to drive. They're cool to look at. So I like the product a lot. I think Elon Musk is uh, unstable at times. I mean, he's, he's very <laughs> visionary. I'll give him that. And that makes him really interesting. And then other times he picks a fight with regulators. And I go, I get it. <laughs> I get it. But that can't be smart for shareholders. Yeah. So anyway. It's tough to always try to be the good guy. Right, like sometimes you just want to get angry and be like, "What are you doing?" Yeah, but it doesn't doesn't but help any situation. This is one of these business leadership questions, and this this leadership question can be extended to lots of different forms of leadership, in my opinion. And it is, you know, what do you stand for and what are you going about? And uh, the interesting thing is, I think what Elon Musk stands for is innovation and early adoption. You know, he's a very uh, interesting guy in those respects. But what he also seems to lack when it comes to what shareholders need is focus. You know, what does he do? Does he build cars or rocket ships or flamethrowers? Or does he contribute intellectual ideas to getting divers and kids out of flooded caves? Right. I mean, they, they, like it's just anything that's novel. He's like, well, here's what you, and what it is, is he's a he's an idea guy. Yeah, right. I mean, he, he's, he's a think he's an, tank kind of guy. He's an idea guy, and he's a big thinker, and he's got enough resources now and enough connections that he can really dream. And he's also newsworthy because of it, so he gets a lot of attention for it. But is he a great CEO? Who knows? Well, so far it's been kind of like eh, I don't know. But I'm, you know, I'm not picking a fight with a guy. I mean, if I had an opportunity to. Uh, you know, go out and grab lunch with a guy and pick his brain and be fascinating. Heck yeah. I'd do it in a second because he's just an interesting dude. Uh, and, you know, he's a little irreverent. And so, yeah, I, I totally get it. Uh, <laughs> I just don't know if that makes him CEO material or not. Uh, Got it. But again, visionary, sure. I think that's a great title. I don't think he has cornered the market on vision. I think there are lots of people that have incredible vision for this country uh, or th- or this world. Right. Really, I mean, bigger than just themselves. Uh, he's just in a position where the spotlight's on him and he gets noticed. And that's that's, true. that's cool for him. Uh, but I don't think he's cornered the market on great ideas or anything like that. So anyway, look, let's let's let me just kind of set up the game here. OK. OK. So we've got to get so we got to get into our first break. 
but we're going to come back and we're going to talk about something that's really important. Now, you have all probably heard of Dave Ramsey, and he's got a great message. But the question is, what's the message before the message? The pre-message. Yes, the message before the message. That when we come back. This is David Littlejohn. And Katie Sheck. And you're listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. Hey, music. Yay, music. <laughs> that one, I recognize that cue. All right, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Show, where you are going to hear the message before the message. I love that. That's setting it up pretty good. The message before the message. And you kind of mentioned Dave Ramsey, and we know Dave Ramsey's right. all about the baby steps. He's the baby steps. And I always say, you know, Dave Ramsey's an easy one, because he's the get-out-of-debt guy. Right. That's totally what he is, the get-out-of-debt guy. He's the get-out-of-debt guy. And so you want to know what the message is before the message? Well, I know what it is, but I was waiting. Don't get into debt. (laughs) I was like, I know what it is. Yeah. Don't go there and don't fall in the hole in the first place. And then you don't have to dig yourself out. I am now into my 20th year in this industry. What? Yep. I got started in 1999. Whoa. Right? What uh, month, out of curiosity? Do you remember? It was about, it was probably like September. Okay. I was just curious. Uh-huh. And September, October, something in there, uh, because I ended up getting my securities licenses about a year and a half later, I started in the insurance side of the business. I remember, yeah. You remember and then I the got, story. And I want to say I got my securities license. It was, I think, February of 2000. 20 years in the business. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's a long time. Right. And I'd like to say it's because I started so young. That's why I... But realistically, I now look at the mirror and the guy looking back at me, I'm like, wait a minute, who's that dude? Okay, but you did start young. I did start pretty young. I was in my early 20s and... It was old-fashioned bootstrapping. Uh, literally, it you know the the old joke about uh, they basically handed me a phone book and said, "All right, start calling people." And I didn't even know what I was calling for. It was it was pretty uh, fend for yourself. And so what I did, and this will probably be evident to those that have listened for a while, is I became just a research junkie because I didn't have a lot of formal training. So what I became was a you just had to look constant, it all up. constant yeah. reader figure and it studier out and ask lots of questions and seek mentors and so just went nuts with that uh and then here 20 years later survived the uh the kind of a gruesome well i won't even use the term but just survived that the the early failure rate you know the washout rate for startup business is super high right and in the this profession you know most people don't make it five years Really? Really. There's a really high degree of washout in the financial services field because it's so heavily sales-oriented early on because that's how you are compensated. And so what folks didn't, they don't know this about me necessarily, but in a prior life, my first business that I started was in college as a disc jockey. I think you've mentioned it once or twice. So I've talked about it on the show before, but I continued that business after I graduated from college. Had I went to work for a, a startup.com kind of company that failed, and I was still DJing by night. 
And then I ended up going into the financial field, and I worked DJing at night so that I could afford to pay my errors and omissions insurance to become an advisor by day. Yeah, you were paying to be an advisor for a while. I literally was paying. And this, of course, in the early 2000s, 2000, 2001, 2002, the markets collapsed and 9-11 happened. Yeah. So that was 9-11 was in 03, right? 9-11 was in 01. 01. 9-11-01. And because I moved to Roseburg... And my first day of work in Roseburg was January 4th, right after the New Year's holiday, January 4th, 2002. Ah. And so that's when I started work here in Roseburg. And that situation was really interesting because the markets were, there was nothing left. And so um, the handful of clients I had, they were all shell-shocked and, you know, they didn't have a whole lot of money anyway. And so it was making, you know, these tiny little... Uh, income amounts. And when I say tiny, I mean, you get a check for like $38 for the month. You're like, sweet, I can go eat. (laughs) So I couldn't even eat. It was literally, I was paying for insurance was $40 a week just to practice. So I had $160 a month of expenses on average and $38 of offsetting income. I paid to work. And people would say, you are crazy. Not anymore. And yeah, now everybody's like, oh, you're so lucky, right? Yeah, you're like, it only took me 20 years to be successful overnight. Yeah, 20 (laughs) years and you're an overnight success. Uh, (laughs) But but it was a lot of uh, trade-offs and a lot of challenges. And, you know, when I first moved to Roseburg, I remember I basically was sort of break even when I left, but I had to leave my DJ business to move here. But that was the only thing that was providing life support to me. And I had no no savings other than, as goofy as this is going to sound, everybody, my IRA. Oh, your I, little IRA. I started my IRA in about 1998. I was still in college. And at the time, the maximum you could contribute was $2,000 a year. I was going to say, I was around, yeah. Now, this is not the Dave Littlejohn story right now, per se. This is all relevant to what I'm about to share with you. This this whole backstory has brought me to a point in my career that I want to share with folks. So after the uh, move, okay, I had the cost of moving yeah. to get here. Moving is so expensive. And within a year of moving here, I did acquire health insurance, which was good because I was initially a private contractor when I was working and I had to buy my own health insurance. And thankfully I did because I had an emergency appendectomy. That doesn't sound like fun. Yeah, and and we all know the story that even when you have insurance, it doesn't pay for everything. No, you have your deductible and everything else up front. And so I ended up with not only the, the cost of the move, but then this big health bill and so i found myself upside down working to pay off these debts i did not have an adequate emergency fund i was fresh out of college and didn't have it the one thing i was really blessed with was i didn't have a a bunch of student debt Uh, but i ended up with by virtue of circumstance i had both credit card debt and then i had from from moving and i had this medical debt right and so i spent the next two years paying it off and when people were like oh hey you know let's go play over here and do something or let's go skiing this weekend or whatever i just couldn't didn't do it didn't make enough money didn't have the discretionary income so made all these trades but here's the part that i think is really interesting i paid every month i made contributions to my ira even while all of that was going on uh so funded 
the retirement plans pretty much, I think every year but one, like the year that we I ventured away, started on my own, and it was 2008, and just through happenstance ended up starting out on my own in private practice late 2008, right when the second market crash happened. So apparently <laughs> market crashes happen. This is the turning point in my life. And that was, I had a one-year-old daughter. I had zero clientele because I had a non-compete clause and it was time to go to work. And then the markets, of course, were haywire all over again. And I think that is a year that I didn't, I couldn't contribute to retirement plan that year. There's just too many other things competing. Um, you know, and so, and we started this business, and now here it is. And keep in mind, at two grand, that's like what, 150, 160 bucks it's a month, something like that. 166 dollars a month. Yeah, that's what it came out to. Uh, so, you know, you fast forward to today, we've got uh, a growing team. Right. Right. There's, I guess, four and a half of us <laughs> in our office. We have a branch <laughs> office that uh, is in the process of sort of merging into our team as well. But there's another three people there. Yep. And uh, extremely fortunate and extremely blessed as we've been able to grow and expand uh, the level of service that we offer and what we do. Right. And in all of this, the number one takeaway that I have is that what's the difference maker between folks that end up turning the corner financially and folks that flounder and, and get behind the power curve? I would say debt. That's the... I mean, that's the difference, acquiring the debt, but falling in the hole in the first place. So I think it is that folks don't set the attitude out of the gate. Right. Okay. It's the I'll buy it now and pay for it later instead and of so, saying I should save for it now <coughs> and then buy it when I have the money. And so here's the, here is the message before the message and the drum that we want to start beating. I think that financial success starts with our kids. Right. We were talking about teaching like junior hires and high schoolers. Yes. Like before they're on their own financially and wreck themselves between 18 and exactly. 25. Uh, the, the message is an ounce of prevention and how do you do that? And it is you've got to put in place the right financial attitudes and principles out of the gate. And you know what I hear time and time again? You know what we don't do and people just lament this? What? We don't teach financial awareness in the public school system. No, we don't. Right? It's just not something that's taught. And the scary thing is, and I know this, uh, this is in no means a knock on our educators who might have the utmost respect for, and I'm married to one, right? So, but in many cases, even our teachers, they weren't taught. Well, right? and some of so, them may not, I always think of it as the person who is not doing well financially doesn't feel confident teaching a financial course. Right. Like, I mean, you got to kind of walk the walk and talk the talk. Like if you're going to do these things and you better follow along with the steps. But it's really hard to stand up there with conviction and teach about budgeting. And, and this is from someone who teaches FPU and has taught people how to budget. Right. And you can't use the acronyms when people don't know it. So Financial, Financial Peace, Peace University. University. That's from the so Dave that's Ramsey. One of the, Dave Ramsey has this course that he offers for people that are in debt. And to he's get like, out. come to this course. And what he'll do is he'll teach you the fundamental principles of managing money and how to get out of debt, how to structure it in a way that you'll get enough wins, victories along the way that you won't quit. Right. Right. And then it's from there you get 
into the process and you turn the corner because you recommit. But I will tell you, it's not an easy process. No. You know, this is, it's like going to the gym when you haven't gone for a long time or ever. Let me tell you something. It'll hurt. Oh, yeah. Okay, you go to the gym and you haven't been, you go tax your body and tell it, hey, we're going to change what <laughs> you're used to. It will rebel. And you have to either get through it or you don't. But you know what's crazy? What? You know, when you take a little kid and you put him in PE class, you know what they call that? Fun. Fun. Exactly. <laughs> fun. It's just fun. And so the question is, why are we not meeting our kids at a stage where if they could learn this stuff, imagine the generational change we could make and imagine the cultural impact we could have on this entire country if we change the way people manage their money. Right. And it, sometimes it's simple things, you guys. Like it's it's having an open conversation with your children. But we're going to talk about that more. Yeah, because there's this uphill battle that we're all going to fight. If you have children or grandchildren, or if you are just, you happen to be, you know, under 25 and listening right now, first I'm like, wow, that's random that you're listening to talk radio. But look, <laughs> there's this uphill battle. And I want to, so let's do this. Let's grab a break. Okay. We'll come back and I want to talk to you about what is this uphill battle? What can you expect? And how can you overcome? Ooh, that I love it. and more when we come back. This is David Littlejohn. And Katie Shook. And you got True Wealth on News Radio 1240, KQEN. True Wealth Show, where if you're just joining us and you have missed it and you need to catch up, there's I have a podcast. Got, that's right, podcast. Right, and it's on uh, Blueberry and right? iTunes. It's not spelled like Blueberry, though. It's spelled all wonky. But you can, yeah. You, well, that's okay all, because, you know, these days we don't have to worry about spelling. Autocorrect will just do it for well, us. We certainly <laughs> hope so. Yeah, Google will figure it out, right? Uh, so, you know, our the podcast hosting service we have is, is Blueberry, but it's available on iTunes. Uh, you can find the raw uh, files if you want to come to our website at littlejohnfs. And so we'll have that. Should be posted probably mid afternoon tomorrow. Yeah, usually by the end tomorrow. On there. Uh, and then uh, uh, the you know five four one radios got it. So it's all over the place. But uh, here's first of all, if you if you missed the beginning, if you're wondering what's going on with the markets, uh, we did have a discussion about this. And the talk of the town is that yes, it really is about China and how the markets are trying to sort out how and what kind of changes to expect and what that does to prices and future earnings. But we really did have a pretty hard pivot because I I want to start. I, mean, I keep talking about this. I really do. I want to start a movement behind this. I want folks to to. I, I would love for folks to get behind this and have some ideas about how we can help. But the idea was, what's the message before the message? Teach yeah. your kids not to get in debt in the first place. Right. Well, you know, everybody starts with, hey, get out of debt. That's how you get financially but back in the saddle. But that's assuming you're going to get into debt in the first place. Well, and what I want to do is say the the way that you, you affect change is you have to look at the culture. And what we've done is I think we've had a very accidental culture that we've allowed to be driven rather than us taking this one and driving it ourselves. Okay. What do you so, mean by that? Well... First of all, let's let's think about how uh, how some elements of our culture evolve. And in this one, our we don't train much around money, right? Well, we don't teach it. So you know where we learn it? it 
advertisers. <laughs> yeah, which guess what? If right. they're selling to you, they're trying to sell their product. And sometimes the product is the credit. It's the credit card debt. Right. And here's what happens is we get barraged with messages that are literally, and this is a case I'm using the word literally in its actual usage, they are designed to manipulate your opinion and create demand. They want you to act in some way. Right. Now, look, I, I'm not even ashamed about this. We, as an organization, Little John Financial, we do advertising and events and we do marketing for awareness. I would like to believe that it's for fairly altruistic reasons, but we are a for-profit business. Right. And so us coming out here and saying, hey, you should make better decisions with your money is self-serving except that we win together, right? <laughs> That's the difference as a fiduciary firm. When you win, we win. Right. Okay. That's how that works. So we are teammates. We are not on the opposite side of the line of scrimmage from each other. Right. That's a big deal because most of the time what advertisers are trying to do is to separate you from your money. Well, and they do that a lot too. I think the the conversation about money has been different in the last, let's say, forty years. Um, but basically, since credit credit cards have been around, right? Because the conversation with money was very simple before credit. It was like, well, you either you go to work, you earn a wage, and you bring home your money, and then you either spend it or you don't based on how much you have. And that was the only option, right? You didn't have it, you couldn't spend it. Yeah, I, and I think maybe t certainly times were simpler. That is true. I mean, today things are much more complex. And if you don't believe me, uh, just take a look at the internet. Okay, the amount of advertising messaging that we see daily is off the charts. But take a look at kids' games, right? Kids' games for five and up or three and up are now coming with credit cards. Like the the new monopoly doesn't have physical money; it has credit cards. You right. charge things. And there's there's a very specific reason advertisers love credit cards too. And there's a reason credit card companies are in business. Right. Credit card companies don't just make money from the interest that somebody pays. They make money every time that card gets swiped. Right. Right. They make a percentage of the transaction itself. So credit cards, that's big money. Right. You take a billion or so people around the world and you have them all swiping and you're making anywhere from, you know, 20 cents to two and a half, three percent on a transaction. And you think about the economic impact that is. It's huge. It's mind boggling. Right. So that pays for a lot of research into how to separate you from more of your money. Right. And this is where the cultural problem starts. What people don't realize is that, and I think this is pretty close, is that when you buy something with money you don't have, you could pretty well count on paying double for it. Yeah. Now I'm winging it a little bit here and I don't have all the data yet, but I'll bet it's pretty doggone close. You go buy a house on a 30 year mortgage. You know what you pay for that thing? Close to double, double. if not more. Yeah. You, it, it's pretty much double the cost, if not more. So you think if you buy something on a credit card and make payments, that's going to be more affordable than buying your house? Well, and they keep passing rules or laws that lower the minimum monthly, right? So before it's like the monthly payment was kind of at least the interest plus some. Now some of them are lower than the actual interest that's accrued. Or like, yeah, and I, and the, the, they're starting the, to flirt with the danger. Cons, the cons, well, these loans have been danger forever, okay? Credit card was never a, a move that, I mean, it's not collateralized debt. It's based on your ability to pay. It's based right. on your credit rating. Right. You know, I think Dave Ramsey does a service by saying, hey, if you could just bag your credit number, who cares about your credit score? Pay cash and it doesn't matter. 
he is right. I mean, until you have to like rent a car or something and they're going, well, we're not even going to talk to you if you don't conjure up. Either pay for the whole thing in advance, right? No, Which, the, our rentals will still do it on debit cards. Yeah. But, the, but the, debit but cards big, are backed by deposits. Visa or MasterCard. Well, that's the transaction medium. Okay. So a, a debit card's not a credit card. Right. It is the transaction itself is essentially accommodated by Visa, MasterCard. But rental card cards will run on debit cards. Nevertheless, by and large, you don't need a credit rating if you pay cash for everything or right. you know you pay as you go if you're you know debit card it may as well be cash okay? i still think they need to do a wealth rating i'm not sure where the top of it would go though like on the score but i, I really wish they would create a wealth scale yeah it's they they're unlikely to ever do it because it's not self-serving okay the credit score is self-serving to the credit agencies so, you, you know, you think about what motivates. You're going like, I think this would be a good idea and it would be good culturally. Remember, the culture was driven by credit cards and consumerism. You know, we're, our economy is driven 70% by consumerism. So that if that's the backdrop, then how are we going to make an influence? And th then the best I can do is say, then we as adults need to help talk to our children proactively and this is a lot like hey eat healthy and exercise and don't spend more than you make it almost needs to be in that line of speaking we need to have this cultural insight where people wake up and go why do you pay double for everything all the time right okay and because it doesn't even serve the per the advertiser it basically serves the financial institutions which we already know that we can all get a little chip on our shoulder about the idea that financial institutions in the last economic collapse, not only did they cause it, but they were also deemed too big to fail. How ironic. <laughs> that is pretty ironic. You know, I think about trying to teach your kids, um, and, and we both have little ones, right? I mean, I have a six and an eight-year-old, and Ellie's seven, eight? eight? She's eight, she's, too. She's eight. Lauren's okay. almost four. Right. And it's, but when you, when you start teaching them about money and you're using a credit card, it's very hard to say, okay, like you have a $10 bill and if you pay for $6 for an item, then you get $4 back. When you're swiping a credit card, you lose half the lesson. Like it's because then they're just like, well, we'll just swipe the thingy and it'll always work. And it's like, oh, but no. you don't have to. You know how? How? I will tell you after our last break. You better stay tuned. David has some good news. Okay, so parents. You've got credit cards and debit cards, debit cards specifically, and you want to talk about how can we help train our kids so they get the value of the dollar? That when we come right back. This is David Littlejohn. And Katie Shuck. And you got True Wealth on News Radio 1240, KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back to the home stretch of the True Wealth Show with a reminder if you are just joining us, podcast. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, give our office a call if you have financial questions. 541-375-0898. That would be the other, is if you know, we've got something specific to you, because we've covered some ground today, but uh, talk about, we're trying, I really do want to do this. I want to start to move the needle culturally. It seems like a really ambitious goal here, but I mean, it may start with the simple things, like uh, we've talked about developing coursework for uh really designed for like the junior high level I think I think that's a good spot to start see I think you there. should start earlier I think you should start when they're little I mean they're learning about money in kindergarten first second and third grade how to count it how much it's worth well, why not start targeting to your kids then you know I I guess I'm looking at it as a point where the math that people have learned starts to be useful in real life 
and that's where and it's also where uh you know oftentimes kids start picking up some odd jobs and stuff like that and it becomes a little more relevant it's true but uh i would say you leave it up to the parent but what i'm thinking about is the the level that I would gear the education toward starts about there. If it's about that eighth grade level, and if a kid's ready for it, no problem, because it's it would be material that's manageable at a younger age than that, because we're not talking about complex math. That's not no. what it is. We're talking about like budgeting and but living within your means. Well, we're talking about those things, and also, if folks could get a handle on what compound interest means, I gotta tell you that, you know, even fairly regular job, you know, if you get into a living wage is the wrong term because that is so nonspecific, but it, it at this, I'll use it, a living wage job can produce enough income that you will be able to be financially secure in retirement, making reasonable decisions and starting at an early age. Right. Like I remember my first job, I made about 10 bucks an hour. Right. It's this. What it is is it's the where do you spend it part. That's the part that we need to make a cultural impact on is folks understanding because I'm telling you, you buy it on time or buy it over time, just you pay double for it or more. And think about what that does to your paycheck. You know, the idea that the, the biggest lie that we are fed in, in our culture, I believe, is at least the biggest lie about money is that I can afford it if I can afford the payment. Right. And and a lot of people don't ask, how much is it? They say, how much is the payment? Yeah. And that is music to a car salesman's ears, by the way, because there's there's a terrible expression. I think I can get away with saying this, but, you know, it's basically there's a, well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a donkey for every seat. Right? What? There's an ass for every seat. Oh, okay. I was okay. like, a what? And that's what the sales term means that either you're going to make a dumb decision or it's the right fit for you. But one way or the other, they can make it work. That's an actual expression in the used car arena that oh, I've heard before. See, I've heard one that said that the most expensive spot or the spot that makes the most money is actually the finance office. It's not the sales lot. The sales well, sure. lot is a means for the finance office. That is, there's lots of elements to it, but that's I don't even want to get into the rest of that. What I want you to understand. But let's is go that back to kids. You making the payments doesn't mean you can afford it. So yeah, let's go back to the kids. What's the lesson when you talked about? How do you teach these kids when you've got a debit card what instead is the of lesson? cash? You're saying, well, you know, they should pay cash. Well, but even the video games, everything they have now is using. Coins. Credit cards yeah. and coins and so forth. So first of all, why? Why the coins? Why or why the credit cards? Answer: Same reason Las Vegas uses chips. Oh yeah, because you're less emotionally attached to it. Yeah, you do not feel the same way emotionally when you are separated from the capital. So there's a phase in between, and so it becomes like play money to you. They've actually done like brain studies oh, where they've absolutely. plugged you in and and. Your brain does not react the same way when you spend on a credit card as it does when you pay with cash. When you pay with cash, it, there is actually a little trigger, like a little pain point. It's, and your body kind of yeah. goes, ow. And it's like, do I really? And that's what makes you stop and think really quickly. Do yeah, I really want to break that 20? It's physically having less than you started, right? I have a certain amount in my possession. I have less than that in my hand now. And so you feel different about parting with it. Right. So one of the things that I believe is very lost in the debit card world and this is such a simple thing, and yet. Is what? A check register. 
Yeah, but that's like a... Yeah, see, even that response is the part that one has to be aware of. When you don't do accounting for what it is, then you are further detaching yourself from the resource. I'm not against doing the accounting. I'm just saying that most people don't carry around their check register anymore. Exactly. So it's, it's I mean, most people don't have their checkbook. from the money. I, so, okay, I was wondering where you were going with that question. So my thing a lot of times is to teach more of having a budget, right? Like if you go to a store with your child and say they earned a reward that week and say, okay, your budget is, let's say $5, right? Then teaching them to look at the prices and figure out what is within $5. Because a lot of times what happens is, you know, there's an item we want and then the kid goes, oh, I want this $10 item. And you're like, oh, you've been really good. We'll just get that anyway. But that's not teaching them the lesson that you want them to learn. No, but that's still different than, again, the six-year-old lesson versus the 15-year-old lesson. You know, the 15-year-old knows how much money is there. But the problem is when you're detached from it, you start to make ding-a-ling decisions. The other one, frankly, is in all this is parents, for heaven's sake, let your kids have consequences. Yeah. They overspend and they light themselves on fire. Sometimes they need to burn for a little while so that they know not to do it again. So You can't save everybody from their stupidity. Yeah. The other thing is you can always turn off the overdraft, right? Like everything's like overdraft protection. If you overdraft your account, we'll give you a backup line of credit, but we're going to charge you for it. It's like, no, turn it off. Because guess what? If you swipe a card and it says declined, that's a really good lesson sometimes, too, well, is to know that you don't, like for, for younger people. Yeah, no, it'll stop you. It'll stop I mean, you. That's, that's good. But we're talking about, I think the number one lesson here is people need to be aware. And anytime that you insulate yourself from the transaction, first, I would say debit card, probably sloppy. Right. Right. Uh, and yet that's exactly culturally what we're driving people to. And the question is, why? Well, who's driving it? It's, yeah, the credit card company. It's a combination of convenience and marketing. Why would somebody <laughs> give you a line of credit when you're unknown? They make enough money to take a shot at. Why do you think they're on every college campus across America? Exactly. Right targeting those 18-year-olds. And so they'll rely on the poor judgment of youth to get you behind the power curve forever. Yeah. And by the way, I've seen people cry cutting up their first credit card in Financial Peace University. Like they are emotionally attached to their very first credit card. Exactly. So Here's the bottom line. I think it's time that we start, and the message before the message is the key. I think we got to start getting financial education into the school systems, and we're going to see what we can do to make that happen. Let's do so it. Stay tuned, parents. If this hits a nerve with you, reach out to us. Let me know if you can help. Uh, give us an email at info at littlejohnfs.com, or they can call us at 541-375-0898. All right. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This has been David Littlejohn. And Katie Shook. You've been listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240, KQEN.